0: I find that all brokenness, whatever its cause, whether it's abuse, whether you grew up fat, whether you grew up poor, whether you grew up with a loser mentality in your family, whether you grew up a hey man in some kind of broken relationship, whether the family separation destroyed you, whether it was grandpa or grandma, whether it was drug abuse in your house, I find that it always does the exact same thing to people and that is it destroys their feeling of self worth but somewhere along the line we got to find a way to lift up the hands that are hanging down we got to figure out a way to deal with these feeble knees we got to figure out a way to get healed from this lameness that's related to stuff amen that people have done and people have said and the lack of things that have happened in our life not being loved not being treated right being bullied in school, being treated with racist comments. Whatever it is, it's broken something inside you. But Jesus Christ says that there can be some healing that will come to the lameness that's inside of us.
1: My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. That voice you just heard is, without a doubt, my favorite preacher. It's a man that I've learned so much from. In fact, all of my ministry, there's probably nobody else that's had a greater influence on it than than him. And that's why I am so honored that he is my interview guest today to talk to you about preaching. And it's none other than Michael Shaw. So, without any further ado, let's jump right into this interview. We'll talk about preaching with Mike Shaw. Well, hey, Dad, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
2: Thanks for inviting me to be here.
1: So, um, I know the story well enough that I could probably repeat it to everyone who's listening. Um, but the story of how our family. Got in the church is spectacular um, and uh, a lot of the you know this the success and opportunities that I have in ministry I've been blessed to grow up in the church you and mama have been faithful and have served the lord and but it's because you uh you you made a decision at a at a young age in your young adult years to leave the world and to follow God, and God has led you into ministry, and so I know the story and the story of our family, but I think it would be really, really cool for everyone else to hear that story too, so tell us about your journey into the preaching of the gospel.
2: Um, I think if I were to go back and start at the beginning, I would say I, I grew up in a, in a home, uh, seven children, seven children. My mother and my father. Neither my mother and my father went to church. My mother was very, a very godly person as far as, um, as far as a person could be without going to church. She didn't swear. She didn't really drink. Um, she was a very, very good mother. And my father was a good father, but he was troubled, and so there was a lot of anger um, in the house. We were always afraid if we get him mad, you know he. He might do something. He never really beat us, but we always feared that he might. He talked like he would. He acted like he would. Sometimes he would break things. Sometimes he would throw things. A lot of bad language. Um, and so, uh, we were growing up without God in in a home where there was significant dysfunction uh, as far as on my father's side in particular. And... Uh, So I didn't have any God context. And so when I got to high school, I started sampling uh, drinking alcohol. Um, I smoked actually much earlier. We used to smoke um, as early as seven years old. I would smoke with our uncle, um, my brother and I. And uh, we. um, I started probably by the halfway through grade nine, I started smoking pot. And uh, drinking, I, there were lots of times where I would s- skip a lot of school. I would be getting stoned and, and drinking alcohol. Um, life came to kind of a head when I was 17. I, I uh, left home mm. and I quit school. Um, I moved off to Kingston where my brother Tom was. He was going to university. And he was the first one to come into the church. But, um, you know, I wasn't mature enough to take care of the bills. I, I did work in a, uh, in a department store, but I ended up having to move back home to try to finish school. Things weren't really any better in my life, but I, I was still drinking and smoking up. And, and, uh, but um, I did go back to school and try to complete my um, high school. And uh, and then I, I left um, home again and moved to Kingston. And um, during that time, my brother Tom uh, met someone who moved into his house who went to the Pentecostal church. My brother had earlier met a man from Botswana who introduced him to the subject of speaking in tongues, if you can imagine, he would smoke pot with this guy, and this guy would tell him about back home. His father was a minister, and in their church in Botswana, they spoke in tongues. My brother was very intrigued by this speaking in tongues. So um, uh, long story short, he he ends up going to the church uh, where this man, who's living in his house now where he lives, is going to... Uh, this Pentecostal Church, United Pentecostal Church in Kingston, Ontario, and uh, I think my brother has gone off the deep end. He's he's got his hair cut. We had long hair. This was this was in the <laughs> back eights. in the seventies and eighties, no, right? This was in the eighties. This this was nineteen eighty one, I think. And uh, I had long longish hair um, down to my shoulders. I even got a perm and got it curled. <laughs> uh
0: it's <That's> awesome <laughs> yeah
2: and uh my brother tom uh he was in queen's university and 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 our life was a mess we were smoking pot every weekend we we were we even tried robbing the drug dealer and uh we were told the drugs were under this under the patio s- stones on the front step and we snuck over. They all, they, all these guys had big, like, uh, Ruttwallers and, and Doberman Pinchers. And, <laughs> and we snuck over there. These people, these people would have killed us if they had found us. And I remember we snuck over there one night, and we lifted up the patio stones, and there was no hole with any drugs in them at all. And then we heard the dogs. <laughs> and we ran for the car yeah I remember diving in through the open back window. My feet were hanging out. My brother was so scared he jumped just stamped the gas and and we made it back home and we were crouched down, looking out the windows, wondering if they had caught up with us but that was that was our crazy life and we were empty we were We were looking for something and so my brother goes to church with this guy that lives in his house and uh, a guy that just had moved into the house where he was renting a room, and uh, he told my brother about speaking in tongues at their church, and he thought, I got to go see this. Yeah. And this is like the stories he heard from his friend from Botswana. And so he goes to the United Pentecostal Church in Kingston, Ontario. It's a little tiny church. They were running around 40 people. But there they are, worshiping, praising God, speaking in tongues. And it scares my brother so bad that he doesn't go back hmm. for like a month. But after a month, the fear wears off, and the curiosity is still got a hold of him. He's hungry. He's thirsty for something in his life. We both were. The life that we were living and the the pathway we we're on was leaving us just really dissatisfied. And um, and so he. Uh, uh, he goes and the Lord touches his life and he starts coming home witnessing to the rest of us actually I don't live at home he he goes home to my parents and he's witnessing to my brothers and sisters they start going to the church that's near them he takes them in his car to the UPC church that is near his house uh, near their house excuse me and they come home they're telling my parents we feel God and and this is not like the church we went to when we were you know the the school bus came around and picked us up and took us off to Sunday school we feel God in this church and my mother ends up going to church in a sh- uh, shortly later shortly after that and and even my father goes and my father never went to church now it's not that we never heard our father say the name of the lord <laughs> it's just but it, it was never it was never praying no and uh, uh so I go home to visit my family. I'm I'm I, I haven't gone to church yet. And uh I go home to um visit my family and they're all talking about God. And they're saying, Jesus this and Jesus that, and my dad is looking at me. My dad actually hasn't gone to church yet, but he's he's talking like he's been born again uh into this thing. And he's telling me how I ought to live, and I'm thinking, what has happened to this family? This is a family where, you know, my brother Kevin was growing pot on the chicken coop, and, <laughs> and, and, and the top of the chicken coop, and and he was, you know, gambling with the neighbors to try to get their money, and 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 my dad was my dad was a mess, and 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 everybody's, you know, that's at least old enough to go to high school. They're smoking pot, and they're they're like. My family was a mess, but I come home and and they're talking like they've been going to church their whole life. And even my father, and he hadn't even gone to church once yet.
1: And Jesus already fixed him.
2: He, he was already. Get, <laughs> I thought they were they were broken more personally. I yeah. thought these people. They're. This was not long after the Jim Jones thing. Yeah. And I'm thinking somebody's got the Kool Aid out or something. And yeah. They were. They, they had become so fervent for the lord i thought what has happened to my family but i hadn't dealt with the emptiness in my own life yet yeah and my life kind of came to a crashing halt where some relationships that i was in uh, had um come apart Hmm. i had i i was searching for god myself i even had a an experience with god in a car, um, I didn't realize I was having an experience with God. I had, a, I had an experience in repentance. And, uh, and so I wanted to become a Christian, but the people that were around me were warning me against the Pentecostals and the speaking in tongues. And, and so um, I wasn't ready to make that uh, step. Um, but when my life came to a crashing halt, um, and I was broken. I, I, I was completely broken. Um, uh, my brother invited me to go to a, it was actually a ladies auxiliary rally yeah. in Picton, Ontario, which was about 45 minutes from Kingston. Um, I didn't have those influences telling me not to go anymore. And I was so broken. I thought, well, how can it hurt? And so I got in a car, there were six people uh, in that car, my brother and myself, another gentleman from the church, and actually Judy Watson, who I'd later marry.
1: Yeah, mom.
2: Yeah, (laughs) your mom, she was in the car, and uh, a couple other people. And we went to Picton, and at that rally, for the very first time, I saw people worship as Pentecostals. I never, I had, I had never seen people raise their hands and worship God. I'd never seen people pray out loud and saying "Hallelujah" and "I love you, Jesus." And 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 looking back, it wasn't really what I would call an intense service. But for this guy, that was kind of a Baptist Seventh Day Adventist. uh, That was the framework that I was coming from. Um, Not that I would have qualified to be in any of their churches, (laughs) but I had started to attend. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist, I gave up the church that I was going to, or gave up the job I was uh, I was working at um, to keep the Sabbath just a little few months before that. Uh, but coming to this Pentecostal church, this was like crazy wild. Yeah. For this guy who had never seen people worship like that before. But while I was in that service, if you can imagine... Um. How this is how green I was. I come walking into that service, and the only Bible I had was those big white family coffee table Bibles. Yeah, I carried like that two in.
1: feet by two feet.
2: Yeah, it, it had like a quarter wood in it. <laughs> uh, I carried that in. Nobody said. Nobody made fun of me. Nobody said that's a really big Bible. And it was, it had a big picture of Jesus. On the front of it. Maybe the Last Supper, I'm not sure. <laughs> a cushioned cover on both sides. And I joke now and I tell people if I didn't understand the sermon, I could just look at the pictures. To the pictures, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I carried that big white family Bible and I'm holding it on my lap. And the, it was actually the district superintendent's wife that spoke that night, Sister Cooling. And um I'd written everybody off. I, I, in my mind, I was judging them. They're hypocrites. They're like the Pharisees. They want to pray loud prayers. I'm judging them. I'm judging the whole atmosphere, and, uh, and, but at the same time, I'm watching this lady sitting in front of me. I could see over her right shoulder, and she was. Worshiping, particularly at the end of the service, everybody was standing, but she had remained seated and she had her hands halfway up and I could see the tears trickling down her cheeks. And I remember thinking there's something going on here that you don't know anything about. Now up until this time I I, I hadn't felt anything. I was just observing but i was watching her and i thought there's something going on that i don't know anything about she's not crying because the dog died or her husband left there's something going on and then my thoughts begin to speak to me and say don't you believe jesus is in the room how how should you act if jesus were in the room and i remember thinking because i knew a few scriptures and that the Bible said where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And, And so I closed my eyes and I began to lift my hands. And I got my hands right about the level of my head. And when I did, I remember distinctly feeling like I was pushing, as I was lifting my hands, I was pushing my hands right into something. My hands began to go numb. They began to tremble. And I remember thinking, and I, and I was praying something. I, I don't even know what I was praying to God, but the, the the other part of my brain was saying, "That's God. You're feeling God." And when I acknowledged that, when I agreed with that in my heart, it fell over me. I, I, the only way I can describe it is it's like liquid love. That I I felt God was so close that. It was like he was touching my face with his face. The lump came in my throat and I fought it. I fought it. I thought, I, I can't cry in front of these people but I could not hold it back. And the tears began to come down. I didn't cry loudly or anything but I I just began to say, I love you Jesus. I love you. I love you. And really what I was feeling was his love and I was reacting to it. And I, I remember weeping and weeping and weeping, and something broke inside of me. And uh, I remember that was a Friday night. The next day was Saturday, the Sabbath, according to um, the church I went to at the time. And I went the next day, and I, I remember we had the hymn book open. And every time we sang the name Jesus, I started bawling. I couldn't stop <laughs> and I get my composure and then we come to another verse or another line in the song and the name Jesus would be there and I'd go to say it and I'd start to bawl. It was like, it was like I had fallen so much in love just saying his name mm. tore me up. Now they didn't, they, these poor people, they, they weren't used to that. No. And, so nobody talked to me after service. Nobody came over and said, are you okay, sir? Is everything fine? Can, do you want to talk to someone? It was like I was invisible. They didn't know what to do with me. But something had happened at the rally. Yeah. And I knew I couldn't be the same. And so my brother came over the next day, which was Sunday, and he had just received the Holy Ghost, and I don't know if you want to hear about that, but that, that's a crazy story. But he no, I just, want to hear about that. Let's hear he, about that. He just received the Holy Ghost, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, but <laughs> okay. what had happened was he was preachy, preachy, preachy up until that point, but it seemed like he wasn't so preachy, and I was still uh, kind of hung up on keeping the Sabbath, and so I said to my brother Tom, I want you to ask your pastor a question. I'd met his pastor at the rally. Mm. I want you to ask your pastor, Pastor Brewer, a question. He said, well, why don't you ask him yourself? And I thought, oh, I'm not falling for that trick. You're just trying to get me to come back to church. But um, he said, well, ask, why don't you ask my my pastor yourself? And in my mind, I thought, no, that's just a trick. And uh, so we finished talking, and he left. And the next day comes around. It's Monday I didn't go to church with him that Sunday. He he came to my house. So Monday rolls around, and guess who I run into in the shopping center? I went into the shopping center on, uh, on the east side, and on the south side, through the doors, comes Pastor Brewer. Hmm. He doesn't see me, but I see him. And I follow him the whole length of the mall. He doesn't know it. And I'm sitting on the bench outside and I'm thinking, I hope he sees me. I, I need to talk to him. And sure enough, he came, up, came out of the bank, Toronto Dominion Bank. And uh, he came across and he talked to me. My, my problem was I was, I, I, I was starting to turn to God through the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I, I was con- convinced I had to keep Saturday as the Sabbath. And so we talked for a long period of time, maybe an hour, an hour and a half. He invited me back to the house. Uh, we had lunch for with him and his wife. He taught me some lessons. I don't know, we had like four lessons out of search for truth. But mostly we spent time talking about the tabernacle and the law and how that the law was a schoolmaster and the Holy Ghost is the Sabbath. And I remember when I left his house, I walked out and I stepped outside into the sun shine it was march um 19, 1982 and it was like something opened up inside my mind and i realized this is it this is the truth this is the church this is what you've been searching for your whole life through the drugs the alcohol the life the brokenness all of that stuff the emptiness this is what you're looking for so that next sunday i showed up at church And when I showed up at church, um, I didn't know how to be a Pentecostal, but my brother had been gone for about five months. And so I figured he's a professional, Yeah, total expert, total (laughs) expert, whatever he does, I'm going to do. So he hollers, I holler, he jumps up, I jump up, he throws his hands up, I throw my hands up. And these two new converts, well, he's a convert, I'm barely a convert, um, we don't have two volumes we only have or we don't have several volumes. We have two volumes. We have the talk volume, and we have the scream at the top of your lungs volume, and boy, we could holler loudly, yeah, and so he would shout, and I would shout, and we would shout so loud that people would scrunch their shoulders up if they were sitting in front of us, and but we didn't we didn't care. we We thought this is what God wanted. He wanted us to worship him, and so I went to church that Sunday. I mean, I was all in. Yeah. From that moment, I was all in. And I went to church again on Tuesday. I went to church. uh, I went to the youth service. I'm telling you, when I started, I went to every church service. I wasn't one of these guys that dabbled. I went all in. I went Sunday morning. Oh, by the way, the first service was Sunday morning. Brother Brewer preached on Acts 2.38. I went up to him, and I said, I want to be baptized in Jesus' name. He said, well, I don't really like to baptize people who smoke. Now, he didn't actually know I smoked, but maybe he had a suspicion. Maybe, you know, this this guy's leading this wild life. He's got long hair, and he probably smokes. I said, no problem. He didn't know it, but as soon as he said that to me, I said inside myself, I quit. Hmm. So I quit smoking right then on the spot, and I quit smoking again a little later on in the day. <laughs> <laughs> and I quit smoking again before I went to church. I really was serious. I didn't want to smoke. I was quitting every time seriously, but I was addicted. And uh, so he baptized me that Sunday night, my very first service in, in my brother's church, my second Pentecostal service. I went again on Tuesday. I went again on, um, uh, on youth night, Friday night. I went to Saturday night prayer meeting. Now, I don't know how long, um, how, how those people could uh, pray that long. I prayed five minutes, and I said everything I could think of. I had to repeat myself. I had to say the same prayers again and again because I had to fill this time. I didn't want to act like a heathen and get up and leave in front of all these people. Yeah, <laughs> But they prayed a whole hour. And I'm th- thinking, what on earth did these people have to pray about? They prayed a whole hour. I prayed five minutes, and... And I was really done. Yeah. And, uh, and then I went again the next Sunday, the next day, Sunday morning, and I went Sunday night. And Brother Brewer says to me on the way out of church, he said, Mike, maybe you'll get the Holy Ghost before the next service. Now I find out later he was really just joking. But when he said that to me at the time, here's this young guy. I mean, I'm starting to feel God and think God every second of the day. So when he says this to me I felt something move in me emotionally and I thought this is a word from God. Now maybe I was a first class charismatic at the in in that moment I don't yeah. know but I mean I'm I'm thinking the man of God is speaking to me it's this is the word of God. Yeah. And so he says that to me And I leave, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, the next service is Tuesday night, which is the next service I was going to go to. That was the next service. And there's a day, Monday, between Sunday and Tuesday. That must be the day I'm going to get the Holy Ghost. So I didn't have a job because uh, Monday rolls around, and uh, I I don't have a job because uh, I quit to keep the Sabbath. (laughs) So I got lots of time on my hands. My sister goes off to work. I'm sharing an apartment with my sister at the time. She's off to work. And I'm thinking, if I'm going to get the Holy Ghost before the next service, it's got to happen now. It's got to happen today. So I'm sitting in a big armchair, and my feet are up on the ottoman. I start off by putting on a little mood music, and my sister has um, this one gospel record by the Heritage Singers. And it's they sing country and western. I'm not really a country and western guy. I'm more of a rock and roll guy. But but I, I got to create a little mood music. And so I put on this Heritage Singers gospel album. And it plays, you know, 15 minutes or so. And I'm praying and I'm feeling God. And then the record stops. And I got to get up and flip it over. And I, I do this two or three times. 45 minutes go by. And I'm thinking, this is not helping me. This music is not helping me. I don't know if it was the country and western or whether <laughs> or whether it was the flipping over of the album. Um, but I knew I needed to just forget the music and just pray. And I remember as I was praying, and I was feeling God's presence. And nobody taught me how to get the Holy Ghost. Nobody said, you should do this or you shouldn't do this. So... I didn't have any barriers to climb over. Yeah. I just knew God wanted to fill me with the Holy Ghost, and I would speak in other tongues. I didn't need 19 Bible studies to teach me that. Yeah. I think that I got that the very first service where he preached on Acts 2.38. And so I'm sitting in this big chair, and I'm praying, and I remember distinctly saying to myself as I'm praying to God, I'm going to speak in tongues like they do at church. Nobody said this is not how you get the Holy Ghost. Nobody said no, you're gonna, you know, that's you, you need to you need to fall on the floor. You need to have God, you know, while you're trying to speak English, try to control you and speak in tongues. You're gonna have stammering lips and all this. I didn't know anything about that. I I'm so new, I don't know anything about that. And so I say to myself, I'm gonna speak in tongues like they do at church. And I'm feeling God, and I'm genuinely praying. And I remember, I just I, I, just speak whatever comes to my mouth. Something comes to my mouth in that moment. And I just start to give it a voice. And as soon as I did that, it was like someone turned the fire hydrant on inside of me. And it just began to pour out of me I could feel this pressure rising up from inside of me and pouring out my mouth in other tongues. And for 45 minutes, I shook and thrashed, sitting in a chair, speaking in other tongues. I remember when I stood up after it subsided, feeling, it it was the sensation that I have had was like I had been living in black and white. Mm. And all of a sudden, Color had come into everything. That's the only way I know how to describe it. It was like yeah, powerful. everything brightened up. And I think, you know, the Lord had touched every part of my mind and my heart. Now, what was very cool, it was I showed up at Brother Brewer's house that night for my very, very first Bible study lesson. I'd started a week earlier to come to church, and I jumped into a Bible study. You would think pretty quickly. It was like one week later. So I showed up at his, showed up at his house for my very first home Bible study, and you can imagine, here's this guy, who has been come to church for a week, and he's still got long hair. Got the perm. I still got the perm. <laughs> Big still family got, Bible. Uh, uh, yeah, I still had the fi- family Bible for several weeks, and that's, anyway. Um, I tell him, I think I got the Holy Ghost today. Yeah. Now, I guess I should have been more assertive. assertive. I should have, said, I got the Holy Ghost today. I, I, I said, I think I got the Holy Ghost today. Well, I think he's kind of skeptical. Yeah. And he says, well, Mike, when you get the Holy Ghost, you'll know it. Well, I thought I knew it. I was convinced until he said that. Yeah. And when he said that, I started doubting. And it wasn't until the next night we started this revival service with... Uh, brother white in our church and and so when i came to church that next night tuesday night um i exploded in other tongues they all thought i got the holy ghost then but i had got it that day on monday now that seemed to be typical of my whole family because my family uh getting the holy ghost at home is what i mean yeah my brother tom who got the holy ghost as i mentioned earlier um he got it uh in, uh, he had moved from the house where he met that guy into another co-op housing uh, where all the students have their own rooms. There were guys living there and girls living there. Was, it's just a mix of, of all these uh, university students. And they shared the kitchen. They shared the living room. And they each had their own bedrooms with locks on their doors. And so my brother, uh, he's scared. He hears someone preach about the coming of the Lord. And he doesn't have the Holy Ghost. And he he goes into his bedroom, and uh, I don't know, it's like 7, 8, nine o'clock at night, and he's in there. And remember, we only have two volumes. We either talk or we, we yell. Yeah. He's in there with the second voice. <laughs> the yelling. He's yelling, Jesus, give me the Holy Ghost. And he's, I mean, he's lifting his voice. He still prays like that. He still prays like In fact, we all that, pray like I that. <laughs> I don't know if they're in the in the common area. The stu- the other students they're turning the 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 radios or the TV up and the stereo up and trying to drown out this religious fanatic that's in there. Just and he prays. I think he told me for like forty five minutes to an hour. He's just in there, just sweating buckets and, and <laughs> praying his head yeah. off. And he doesn't get the Holy Ghost yet. And so he's setting his clock radio because he has uh, an assignment due or an exam the next day. And he's trying to find a channel so it will come on loud and wake him up and he can get up and study. And he skips across a channel where they're either speaking Spanish or they're speaking French. And he stops. And he says out loud to the radio, he says, I can speak in tongues too. And he throws his hands in the air and Instantly, he begins to speak out in tongues. And right then and there, God fills him with the baptism wow. of the Holy Ghost. My, my dad, who uh, had finally started going to church and, and uh, actually started going to church before I did, but uh, he went into his bedroom, as his custom was, after dinner um, and has a little nap. And my mother hears somebody talking in the room. He, she thinks, uh, my dad is talking in his sleep. So she cracks the door open and she wants to hear um, what he's saying. You know how it is when people are talking yeah, yeah. in their sleep. Is, you know, and, and so, but he's not talking in his sleep. He's speaking in tongues. Wow. He laid on the bed. He couldn't fall asleep. He started praying and God filled him with a baptism of the Holy Ghost wow. right then and there. Uh, my younger brother and sister, uh, my, my younger brother, Chris, who's now a pastor and a minister, um, had stammering lips. This happened a, another night, but all within a, a, a few months uh, of them beginning to go to church. My, he's only 11 years old at the time, but he's laying on his bed. He's praying. He has stammering lips. And so his older brother, my younger brother, Kevin, who's now a pastor as well, he goes in the room. Uh, Kevin is 16 at the time, and 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 Chris is 11. And, and Chris has stammering lips. And Kevin begins to pray with him. And Chris, at 11 years old, in the bedroom, receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost. My parents are, had, uh, uh, we lived way out in the country on a dirt road, and they went into Brockfield to buy groceries. And so this is all happening while they're away. So Chris receives the Holy Ghost, begins to speak in tongues. My younger sister, Lori, who is talking on the phone, she's 13, she's talking to a school friend on the phone, I think it was, and she hears what's going on. She hangs up the phone. She runs into the bedroom and she receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And when my parents come home, they find my sister Lori in the kitchen, lost in the spirit, praying in tongues. And it's just absolutely crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm feeling it. My mother, around this time, um, kneels down beside the couch and God fills her in her quiet way, fills her with the Holy Ghost. She was one of the only ones that wasn't... She, she's not a shouter so much. She she does praise God outwardly, but she's not as loud as the boys anyway. Yeah. And she received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And uh, um, we don't even know what it's like to get the Holy Ghost at church because we got the Holy Ghost at home. There were times that that if you... We're at our house after this all took place. everybody's talking loud, everybody's worshiping God, and there might be a message in tongues and interpretation. Happen. yeah, now that didn't happen that was rare, but it wouldn't be so uncommon that God would not intervene into that mix of worship and pray prayer and and talking about the Lord, God was completely out of the box. God was out of the box. We were out of the box. We, um, we were, we were absolutely on fire. We would be telling absolutely everybody that we could find about this experience and about the the the, the message of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just the experience. We didn't just buy into the experience. Of speaking in tongues, we bought into the whole apostolic lifestyle. Yeah, we bought into everything, and we repented of our sins. We pushed the sin out of our life, and we uh, began to live this life for Jesus Christ. I lost all my friends, um, as did my older brother Tom. Tom broke up off with his girlfriend of, uh, of three years. Uh, dated her for three years. I remember how devastated he was, but he, he she wasn't going to come on this journey with him. And so um, that relationship uh, disintegrated. But we were all in. We were absolutely all in. And I remember um, telling Brother Brewer um, just weeks after I got the Holy Ghost that I feel like I have a call to preach. Huh. And I don't... I don't know, I don't know what got a hold of him. I certainly would not have done this with me. But within one month of me being in the church, or maybe two at the very most, he asked me to speak <laughs> during a Bible study. Yeah, I know I was very, very new because I still had longish hair. It was well over my ears coming down my neck and my shoulder, not maybe quite to my shoulders at this point. And so I got this Bible study it was um very first time i ever spoke and it was about rebellion rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and you know that scripture uh, i think it was samuel speaking to saul and brother brewer walks into the sunday school room that's where i'm sitting at a sunday school table and i'm studying and i just have a strong concordance uh, by now i got rid of the family bible and yeah. i have a i have a thompson chain and uh i'm there studying and brother brewer says to me, Mike, I think maybe you need to get your hair cut a little bit before you speak. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay. I remember it bothered me. I thought, man, he doesn't like me. Yeah. You know the devil can play games absolutely with you, especially when you're a very new convert. And then the Lord reminded me, you're speaking on rebellion. You need to submit, because rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So I went, and got my hair cut, and um, I'd, I'd actually got my hair cut like five times uh, in those two months because, you know, I'd, I'd cut it and get a little shorter, and then i cut it and get a little shorter, and finally, when he came along and told me to get a cut, I, I got myself a, a proper haircut <laughs> for a guy in 1982, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I spoke my very first sermon. I remember I got up. And I started to speak. I had several pages of notes. And I opened up my mouth and I said about three sentences. And I folded like an accordion on the pulpit. And I just began to weep. And I could not stop. I wept and I wept and I wept. The people began to worship. I couldn't really preach my sermon at all. It was a pathetic message that I gave. But I think the people were moved because here was this young guy He'd cleaned up his act, very new in the church. And here he was trying to preach and felt the Lord so strongly. All he could do was cry. And that was my first sermon. That was the so
1: you, you got the Holy Ghost at home, and then within a couple of months of getting the Holy Ghost, you're behind the, like, this is a fast, fast I, I, rise ministry. I would never have ministry.
2: done it. I, it might not have even been two months, but it was a very short amount of time because I know I went to Bible school. I, that was in March when uh, March of 1982 when I got baptized, and I went to Bible school in, in September. And so it was... I, it you went not, all in. It it's could all not in. have been any more than a month or the very most two. I was all in. I went to Bible school in September. I only went one year. I tell people I'm a Bible school dropout. I think
1: you did okay. Uh
2: but um I went back and I served in my local church. Um and I preached once a week. Um, even though I was still technically, if you look on the calendar, I'm a very new convert. But I was I was completely immersed. I long before I even went to Bible school, I was praying. Uh, an hour a day, I was reading the Bible from cover to cover. I was there wasn't a single day where I wasn't praying and reading the Scripture and studying, and God was speaking to me, and uh, and and He was using me. I was I was a very effective witness, um, and I was devoted. I was completely devoted to my pastor and devoted to. Um, the mission. I remember I was in Bible school, a a pastor that wasn't too far away from where our church was, came up to me and said, well, you know, I can't ask you once you go back home, but um, now that you're in Bible school, would you like to come and assist me for the summer, be our youth pastor? And I I never gave that a second thought. I didn't even need to pray about it. I just said, no, Brother Brewer needs me. I'm going to be returning home and I'm going to I'm going to help him. And I was perfectly satisfied in doing whatever I could to help him. It was my mission in life to support him and to help him. And uh, and I did that. And I did that.
1: And you met mom in the process? Oh,
2: yeah. I met her actually very early. on. I, I don't seem to be a guy that, that wants to wait a long time to do things. <laughs> I... I came in, in, in into the church in March. By the summer before I went to Bible school, I, I'm going to just caution everybody that's hearing this, I do not advise anyone to do what I've done. <laughs> right? It's, it's like the warnings, don't try this at home. Yeah. I, was, I not only started dating her in May, but I got engaged to her by August before I went to Bible college. And then I went to Bible college that one year. Maybe that's why I only went one year because wanted I wanted to get married. I got married on we got out of Bible college the end of of April and I got May, uh, married on May 7th. It wasn't like I I waited like a week. Yeah. One week after I finished one year of Bible college, I got married. And uh, um she had been to Bible college, a Bible college graduate and um and had been very, very devoted, gifted, working with children. And uh, she was attending the church that I got saved in, in Kingston. And, yep, we got married. and um, Shortly after that, transition was on the horizon, right? Well, I stayed and helped Brother Brewer. I remember I said to Brother Brewer, I guess I was traveling so fast, I didn't know how to slow down. I said to Brother Brewer, so when do I get my minister's license? After all, I'd been to Bible school for a whole year. I'd been a whole year. Been safe, saved for uh, a year and a half, <laughs> and he said, "I'll tell you when you need to get your minister's license." Yeah. And so, in 1985, so three years after I was saved, he said, "It's time for you to go get your local license." And so I did. I said, "Okay." And, uh, he didn't need to tell me twice. I never asked him again. And I, I got my minister's license. I went to the district board. They gave me my minister's license. They all knew me. They all knew my family. We came in, uh, with quite a, a burst in the district. And, um, and then two years later in 1987, I went, um, uh, I felt directed of the Lord. Very, it was a Another one of those experiences where it was an interruption. I wasn't looking to go anywhere, asking to go anywhere. And the Lord just uh, spoke to me in a a conference and said, I want you to go to this church that was announced that it was open. And so I moved in 1987 to Cornwall. I think you were two years old. Um, I was... Uh, in the church. um, I think five years, I was 25 years old. Wow. And uh, this, the great church that we took had two people in it, no building, no music. And there we spent the next uh, 12 and a half years trying to establish that church. Most of it was still, we still had no music, but We got a small group together, 30, 35 people. We bought a building, um, and that was uh, the way I got into ministry.
1: And then after that transition to where you are now as
2: senior pastor at LifePoint in Hamilton. After 12 and a half years in Cornwall, um, I think I didn't know what burnout was. And so I was working full-time, running a business, to support myself, paying most of the church bills and preaching, um, you know, three times a week. I was the youth president for the district. Um, I was burned out. I actually felt like I was backslid. Not that I didn't love God. It was a I didn't understand what was going on. I couldn't feel anything anymore. I was burned out. Anybody that's ever burned out will understand. I'd never lost my enthusiasm, my optimism. But I lost my optimism. I stopped believing I could do it i could I stopped believing that I could build the church more and I knew it was time for let to let someone else take this on and uh, so I withdrew from being pastor. Someone else took the pastorate and for six months, I preached uh around in churches, evangelized um, and during that time, the pastor who was near retirement. Ian Hamilton, Victor Levitt, um reached out to me and he said, I'm going, I'm going to retire in a couple years. Would you come to assist me? And uh, I said, yes. I felt like that was the will of God. Preaching out and um, around, um, it, was, it, it was a great experience and I loved it. But there was a part of me that that said, you need to be a pastor. I love being in the trenches with people. I love being a part of people, uh, their lives. I love preaching out, but um, I love that human connection that I have as pastoring at uh, with pastoring. And so, he invited me to come, and I moved to my family. It took a little while. We traveled back and forth for six months, and finally, uh, we were able to make the transition from Cornwall, which is five hours from Hamilton to Hamilton, and uh, I assisted uh, Victor Levitt for uh, two and a half years in total, and then he retired, and the church uh, asked me to stay on as the pastor. And uh, that was in, uh, the move was in 2000, and the, uh, the becoming pastor of, what we now call Life Point United Pentecostal Church happened in September of two thousand and two so shifting gears
1: a little bit now we've heard the story um now let's talk about um your the nuts and bolts of your preaching for a little bit. Sure. if there was a way that you could and I always preface this, this is a hard question because um often we're we're supposed to not talk about ourselves. Not in a way of you know telling our story, but not not think of ourselves a whole lot when we're in the pulpit it's we want to lift up Jesus, so sometimes it's it's difficult to think and to define it, but if there was a way that we, you could define your approach or your style to preaching, how would you define your style or and, and then explain it if you could?
2: I would say that um that i I have to feel something to preach it. I have to feel it burning. Every time I preach, I feel like this is the greatest thought that you could ever have. It's consuming me. And that's that's maybe the way that I preach. Sometimes that's why I preach so passionately is because it's so bur- it's such a burning fire inside my soul. I can't preach somebody else's sermons. Um I remember Brother Burr used to give me the Sunday school lesson way back when I preached in Kingston, and I didn't know it until several years later. It was always the lesson that he wrote. He wrote lessons to go into the Sunday school, what they call the Sunday school quarterly. It was the Sunday school lesson. And I would look at it, and I'd, I'd hand it back to him after a day or two, and I'd say, I can't get anything out of this. <laughs> it turned out to be his lesson, and he didn't want to. Teach it after he had spent weeks and weeks preparing it. Well, that's the way I am with preaching. I can get thoughts from people. If I'm hearing a sermon uh, on tape and I hear somebody preaching, as soon as God speaks to me from it, I shut it off because I don't want to preach their stuff. I want to preach from that spark that they gave me or that the Lord gave me from their message. That's the way I would describe my preaching. I have to feel it. It's all it is. passion. It's all passion. It's all uh, from a burning inside. I have to feel it. That's why I do struggle sometimes in trying to look ahead and say, what are you going to preach six months from now? I have a, I, 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 I'm getting a little bit better with planning, particularly Bible study series that way. But it's because I need to feel it. I need to feel what God wants to say right now and um and that's that's how i describe it so almost every message i get it comes from me preaching or from me reading the word or comes from me seeking god's face or the combination of both when i look at the bible it's just a book of words it doesn't say anything to me um unless i'm either really focused on reading intentionally or Um, I've been in prayer and God has brought scripture to my mind and then it speaks to me.
1: So I guess that's the answer to the next question. How how do you stay fresh? Because you're preaching, you preach every Sunday um, and and it's, it's a new and it's a fresh thought that you're bringing to the pulpit. How do you, how does Michael Shaw stay fresh and inspired? I
2: have to be praying and I have to be reading the bible. If I and we all go through seasons of time where you know your prayer life isn't as fresh or isn't as focused those are the times I'm struggling for a message. Those are the times I'm you know I'm flipping through old sermons or or whatever and And I know what I need to do. What I need to do is I need to get in my prayer closet. I need to seek God's face. I need to have the Bible in one hand and and another hand reaching out to the Lord, so to speak, if you can imagine that picture. Because for me, I have to feel it or it means nothing. It means nothing unless I can feel it. But if God gives me, I only need a word. If he gives me a word, I don't, sometimes I don't even, I don't even know what the verse is, but a verse will come to mind and I know it's God and I'll open the scripture. And as I peel back the scripture, uh, it begins to come alive, but that prayer life and that reading of the scripture is, that's my lifeline. I have nothing to say unless, um, I feel inspired by the Lord.
1: So you get that spark of inspiration. Walk us through the next steps. How does that all, how does it all come together? Because I, I, I've seen your notes. You, you get, it's, you're passionate and you, and you, and you flow from that feeling and that inspiration, but you don't go up and just wing it. You're not a winging it kind of guy. It's very structured. So walk us through the next steps.
2: So when I feel inspired, that's the beginning. Uh, I may not even know where I'm going to go with the message. But I open the scriptures, and I have my notepad. Um, I I fluctuate between writing and typing, but generally I like to write. Um, And I just start writing. I start with the text, and I start writing what I see from the text. And I'll write sometimes for several pages, but then all of a sudden, it's like something clear comes in my mind where I need to take this thought. It started with a thought. Maybe I'll have the end from the beginning. But uh, 50% of the time, I just start writing what I see in the text, what's speaking to me from the text. And then what happens is the message is developed. And then I go back and I edit those notes and reorganize them because those are ramblings. I'm, I'm feeling my way along. And this is really one way how, this is how I know the difference between me being inspired maybe by someone else and me me being inspired by the Lord. When I follow the thought process, when I start going down the road of the sermon and I hit a brick wall, I abandon that sermon. I have an inspired thought, but I don't have a sermon. Yeah. Um. Now, sometimes, if I leave it, more stuff comes the next day. Or other times, that's where it dies. It dies in the vine, so to speak. Yeah. But I begin just writing, and I begin uh, putting together my thoughts on paper. And uh, then I go back and, and form that into a message. And I write down uh, my message. Ultimately, if you see my notes, um, they're not in paragraph form. They're in a point form, but you could follow the points along and see one point leads to another. And uh, generally, I I use that paper and those notes to develop the thought. Um, and I'll follow along uh, to a, once I get up behind the pulpit and start preaching. I'll follow along. Generally, I start pretty closely to my notes, and I'm following along. And then there's a certain point. It's almost like an airplane. I'm using... I'm using the the beginning part of my preparation, my notes uh as the runway, but there's a point in the message where i what do they call that I touch, take off yeah. you take off i there's there where there's no longer any contact between me and the notes. I'm preaching everything that I have in the notes um, but I may not preach it in the same order. I may edit it on the fly. I may leave stuff out or put things in. I may add a story that comes to me right in the moment. But um, I use my notes to develop my thought that came out of prayer and the study of the word. Um, It develops my thoughts. And then I use my notes as my starting point. And uh, I find, and it's the way my brain works, I find that... Um, I have trouble always, I, 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 I sometimes have trouble getting my thoughts down on paper in the organized in the best way to deliver my sermon. So everything is there, but after I take off, I may reorganize the whole back half of my message in the moment, in the moment. That's cool. In the moment, because in the moment I have perfect clarity in the moment, I have perfect understanding of where I'm going. In the moment, I'm seeing and feeling things in the room, and I'm very much a feeler, as you might uh, figure out from all my personal experiences. But in the room, as I'm preaching, I'm feeling what's going on. I may sense I'm speaking to this person, or I'm speaking to that person, or I, uh, I may just sense this is what I need to say right now. And I'm very much in the moment. Um, it's a dangerous place to be because if you're not careful, you can preach too long. Uh, you can kind of miss the sweet spot in the length of a good sermon. But um, uh, that's that's how I preach. That's how I preach since the very beginning.
1: Now let's shift gears into the last third of some of the questions we have here. Um, and this is the opportunity. You've been in ministry now for well over 30 years. Um, It's what, 36, 37, 37 years that you've been preaching the gospel. You've served, um, you now serve on the district board. You've served as North American Missions Director, North American Missions Secretary, and were a youth president for about six years. And you are actively um, mentoring one-to-one, mentoring um, some young ministers or young aspiring ministers on a weekly basis, and then monthly with the, about five or six young ministers, majority of them in their very early 20s. So it's an opportunity. You get a lot of experience uh, in leadership and, and mentoring people, and this is an opportunity for you to speak to um, this, this listener audience about the next generation. Spotify tells me that a majority of that Spotify audience is under the age of, under the age of 30. Most of them are between 18 and 24, what do you admire as you look back at this new generation? What do you admire most about the new generation of younger preachers that you are seeing coming into, the, into their own and into
2: leadership? I am surprised, at, at least with the young man that I work directly with, the young men and the young women, I am surprised at the level of hunger that they have for genuine apostolic truth and genuine apostolic revival. Um, there, There's a lot of stuff out there. Um, some of it good, some of it not so good. But um, what I'm excited about is to see how that they are using their creativity and and their... Uh, youthfulness and they're bringing that into the apostolic church and seeking ways to spread the apostolic teaching and the apostolic experience and so i'm i'm most excited and most impressed with this hunger and this creativity and this ingenuity while at the same time um desiring to embrace uh the same gospel that I I got saved under. Yeah. Um the same power, the same the same Jesus experience that delivered me seeing that in their lives and how hungry they are to preserve that but yet bring this uh you know the technology and the the, uh, uh, the new methods, uh, you know, there's a lot more visual aids and a lot more uh, presentation and communication using you know things like Facebook and and uh, there's, there's technology I'm not even aware of now that, that that's being used. And but seeing how they want to merge this the new methods with the old message. Yeah. And To me, that that's exciting. It brings a goosebumps up on my arm watching them uh, bring that to the kingdom of God, and and that's what excites me.
1: So they're passionate. They're enthusiastic. They want real, genuine apostolic revival. That's what's good. But looking at this same generation, what do you think we need to work on? What are the things that you say look I love your creativity I love your passion I love this hunger for revival that's rooted in truth but I see this as a red flag and if and if this generation doesn't cause it doesn't address this red flag or doesn't work on this thing this this could thwart it could thwart all of the good intentions and godly desires what what's the one thing that we need to work on
2: I would say that the thing that it's probably not easy for any generation, but maybe this generation where everything is moving so fast is to remind them that the growth in people's lives and the growth in the church takes time. There's no fast way there's no quick way to grow someone into a disciple of Jesus Christ it takes discipleship, it takes teaching, it takes time, it takes a lot of prayer, you can if if you're wanting to grow this fast then you're going to be sadly disappointed because you're going to have to give up some stuff that um, I don't think we can afford to give up if you're going to grow fast you may get a crowd fast and there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing wrong with getting a crowd of people because from the crowd of people you're going to get the converts but Don't assume that you have a crowd and that means you have a church. You only have a church when you have disciples. And so my caution to this generation would be there's no shortcuts. Don't make shortcuts to get to the end result. We can't compromise. We can't compromise. We can call it compromise or shortcuts or whatever. There's no quick way. You cannot turn someone into uh, a real disciple of Jesus Christ, um, in, in some quick way, growth takes time. It's 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 kind of like taking a baby and thinking that now that we're living in a new period of time, you can stretch them and make them six foot tall and have an understanding of life and uh, make them mature quicker than the time that it takes. We've done a lot of things with technology, but we have not figured out how to mature people quicker. It still takes someone who's 19, 20, 22, 25, 28 years old before they become a man. There's no quick way to turn them into a man. There's no quick way to turn someone into a disciple. You can't shortcut the discipleship process in order to produce converts quicker. Yes. You So so don't build the church that way. Um, Use all the technologies, use all the methods, use, uh, I don't care if someone preaches sitting down or standing up, if they dress in a pair of jeans or a a three-piece suit, all of those things are irrelevant. Yeah. The quick way of making converts will never work. And I'm not saying those things that's the quick way yeah the quick way is not teaching people the quick way is somehow thinking we can fast track people and make them uh real disciples of jesus christ
1: and holiness is not as essential as it needs to be
2: not spending time teaching not spending time mentoring not letting them ask questions and you like this just takes time yeah and that is the greatest danger of the apostolic in the apostolic church in this generation is that we want, we don't want to wait. We want it to happen now. We look at some group of people that are building a different kind of church, and that's up to them. I'm not their judge. They're building a different kind of church, and they go from, you know, someone's living room to 3 years later having 9,000 in their church, and we think we think that we're going to build that that fast. The only way to do it is to build their kind of church. So if you're going to build an apostolic church, and I'm not saying it's all slow. I'm not saying that, you know, we have to be, you know, 50 years and and still running, you know, 40 or 50 or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that making disciples takes time. And so the way, if you want to speed up the process, you have to multiply the number of teachers that you have. That's the only way. You have to multiply the number of teachers and the number of opportunities for people to get saved.
1: One thing we always do at the very um, end of these interviews is we give, we give the guest the last word. So this is the opportunity for you to speak from the heart, to, to feel that impulse of the, of the spirit. And it, it, give us the last word one parting challenge to the predominantly young audience um,
2: and to close us out I would say if I if I were giving the last words of my life to my children to my grandchildren I would I would challenge them to do these two things. Love people genuinely and personally. Don't love them so you can get them in the church, but genuinely love people and love them like Jesus would love them. And number two, I would say, hang on to Jesus Christ and his message and his truth and do not give up one inch. I believe you can love people genuinely and not give up on one inch of the truth of the gospel. And I think with those two principles, you can build a thriving apostolic revival church.